Welcome to episode 32 of the Bike Pack Canada podcast with yours truly, Ryan Corey. Uh, if you enjoy listening to these episodes, uh, please take a minute or two to leave a review on iTunes uh, and or comment on the under the episode uh, where you see it on bikepack.ca. Uh, a lot of love goes into these uh, stories and, and I'll admit it's, it's nice for myself and uh, new listeners to see some of that love uh, coming back. Uh, it would be greatly appreciated. My interview today, uh, taking place at 6.30 p.m. Canmore time, is uh, actually happening in the future, sometime late morning in Australia. By the miracle of uh, the interwebs, I have been able to connect with Kerry from K-Lite. Uh, he's the dude behind those orange dynamo-powered lights that pretty much everyone is using these days. Uh, it turned out to be one of my favorite chats uh, so far, and uh, I hope you enjoy no, thank you so much for having me on this podcast. It's it's great to finally have a chat about some more product, and uh, it's exciting times. It, it certainly is. And uh, just coming back from the the tour, I was absolutely amazed just how many K lights were out there. To me, it feels like I kind of watch all you guys through a letterbox, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, uh, we look through our little tiny screens, and we kind of extrapolate what's going on or what we think's going on but when you get out there and you can kind of see it for real it's it's, it's that much more amazing what what all those riders are doing um so it was an absolute joy to get out there and uh thank everyone individually um for for riding k-light because i have i've had i've had humble beginnings and that's that's for sure ryan um we'll, 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 that's get, for we'll, sure. we'll get into that but had you had you ever been to uh banff before uh, no, never been to Canada. Um, I've been to the US once, and that was probably 10, 10 years ago at least, or 15 years ago, um, but never really gone there for for an extended time. So it was amazing to see the mountains that literally at your doorstep. Like, I think we had a mountain each uh, outside of our place <laughs> we were staying. So uh, it was pretty incredible, pretty incredible place to be. You stayed for a couple of weeks, didn't you? I actually stayed a week in Banff, and we stayed the first two nights. We stayed somewhere to get over the jet lag, um, and then we just we crashed at the uh, the YWMCA. Oh, sorry, the the YMCA or the y- yeah, du- the, actually the y- women's version. Yeah, y- <laughs> w- YWCA. Yeah, yeah, I've still got a bit of jet lag, so I'm getting my words backwards. But we stayed there for. The, the night before and the night before that, so I could really mingle with, with a lot of the riders. I ended up having a room of six, and um, I think everyone was quite amazed that the K-Lite dude was in their dormitory uh, as well, and I got, certainly got asked a million questions. I ended up losing my voice. Um, I literally got asked that many questions, and every every metre I moved, there was another question to answer, and uh, right up to, like, 1 o'clock in the morning every night. So it was pretty crazy in that respect. So uh, you mentioned you've been back for a little bit. Where, where in Australia am I calling you? I actually live an hour and a half from Sydney. So Sydney is probably, I guess, the, the city we know about. Um, Australians really only live on the coast. Um, so we've got this thin strip of, of people. And then as you look into the centre of Australia, there's really not much people or really no people uh, in there. So I'm in Newcastle, which is an hour and a half from Sydney. Uh, we have a 
a reasonably fast train that we can kind of catch into Sydney and, and back. So that's really handy, and it's only a couple of dollars on the train. So I, I don't actually go to Sydney very often. It's, it's, it's a little bit too busy for my liking. I like to hang out here in the nice, quiet, riding my bike. So Newcastle's where I'm based on at the moment. Gotcha. Okay, well, so for the, the interview here, I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions, some of it on your, your, your story, some of it on the technology, and uh, some of the answers I, I already know, but for the sake of those listening that are, that are new to uh, dynamo-powered lights, um, we'll, we'll, we'll just go through the basics and then you know, maybe get into more of the, the specifics too. But uh, maybe, maybe the obvious start is, is what are dynamo-powered lights, and is this a new technology? It's it's really interesting question. The dynamo lights were kind of born in Germany to a certain degree, and a lot of the newer designs will be based on the German regulations. So back in the old days, we had what we call a bottle dynamo, and we all remember, I guess, the old cartoons or, or, or granddad's bike where the the little bottle dynamo would just rest against your tyre and it would cause a fair bit of friction. And I guess you'd go down a hill and your bulb would blow out and, of course, your, your, rear, your rear light would blow out then and uh, that caused a fair bit of drama. Um, although it had a lot of friction, it did have a few problems like uh, slipping in the wet um, and it was really quite a low-power um, device a bottle dynamo. It didn't really produce much power, and we were on incandescent globes. And the German regulations is what most dynamo manufacturers use, and the main reason is that by law, each bike in Germany must have a dynamo light, which is just fantastic. Um, so everybody is safe, and if, if say, a battery-powered light, which they can have as well, was, was to run out of juice. Of course, you've got the good old reliable dynamo to, to come in. And most of the lights, because of the German um, laws about having a dynamo light, most of the lights are actually designed to live up to the German specification. So I guess that's why a lot of the lights are not very bright because the, the, the German specifications dictate that they must be saturated or have their maximum power at 15k an hour. So really that changes the way that all the lights work because most of the people, they're going to design a light for the German system or the German regulations. They're not going to make anything else because they want to sell them in Germany. So really the dynamo light, was born out of the German regulations and it wasn't until the dynamo hubs were invented that did we saw a massive surge in dynamo lighting happening. I guess it's the, the modern era. So the dynamo hub and the LED really was a game changer. And so we've moved away from the old bottle dynamos and the old incandescent lamps that were prone to blowing up at speed. We've moved over to the dynamo hubs and LED dynamo lights. And, and to me, that is a modern system. And that's really what I call a dynamo light these days. Gone are the old days and we've ushered in the, 
the, the new wave of LED, super high-powered dynamo lights, and, of course, high-powered dynamo hubs. And so that's where we can really start the story. Gotcha. And the, the dynamo hubs, as we're more familiar with them, do you, do you have a sense of, uh, of when they came into the mix? For me, I reckon it was the, the mid-'90s to the sort of early 2000s that really the first Dynamo Hubs came about. And as a bike mechanic, I was always interested in just riding my bike, and I guess I was obsessed with everything bicycle. So, you know, it had to be Dynamo Hub. And so when they first came out, I was like, hey... I have so got to get onto this. I never thought about recharging. Back then, USB didn't exist. But it was all about the dynamo lights. Now, we did have incandescent lights, and they were pretty shit. And so what I did in the early 90s when the first dynamo hubs come out, I actually was trickle-charging some sealed and acid batteries or gel cells. They were the very first rechargeable batteries that we had, the lead batteries. And I was actually recharging them from my dynamo. Um, so that really was the first system. And then I was, from that, then I was running lights, you know, obviously from the power that I'd, I'd, I'd charged in the day. So it, it wasn't until, I guess, the early 2000s that Dynamo Hubs really start to sort of be manufactured and, and, and be widely available. So I guess that was the start. We can call it the early 2000s. Gotcha. And you said you were a bike mechanic. How long were you a bike mechanic for? Well, interesting to note, I started when I was 15. And the main reason is I, was, I wasn't homeless, but I didn't really have a house and I didn't really have parents. So I guess I was semi-homeless and I was a little bit poor, so all I had was a bicycle. And I guess that's sort of everything that I had so I had no choice but to commute on these bikes and that was really the start and what happened was I wanted to be a scientist Um, I wanted to help the world with understanding the innermost nature of of the world and that didn't actually happen because I got hit by a car on the last year of my university entrance exams and I didn't actually get the marks that I wanted. So I was quite devastated. And what actually happened, I got a very small amount of money from the accident. I think it was maybe two or $3,000. And I actually went out and I brought myself a really nice bike. And But the bike didn't work. It wasn't actually assembled properly. So long story short, I found this guy that knew how to assemble a bike properly. And I was 15, and he was probably 10 years older than me, and he saw that I needed sort of a bit of help, and so I guess he took me under his wing. So at 15, I hooked up with this guy that at the time was ranked number three in Australia nationally in mountain biking. So he was actually a really good cyclist and probably one of the best mechanics in Australia. It was just luck had it that I bumped into this guy and he took me under his wing so I guess from the age of 15 I become a fully fledged bicycle bastard as as we called it (laughs) 15 and on really 15 to now or two years ago I stopped fixing bikes and was full-time K-Lite so it's really only been a brief while that I haven't been fixing bikes 
Um, and but I've been doing K-Lights for the last 10 years. So, I mean, guess, I guess it would be almost 25 years as a bike mechanic in Canberra, where all the professionals live. So I did work for a lot of the bigger teams. Like, I worked for the Australian Institute of Sport, where all the, the top racers would go. I worked for the Australian team, New Zealand team, the Olympic team, quite a few of those sort of teams I got the pleasure to work for but really with the uh, synergy of, of, of meeting this guy that was an amazing mechanic, an amazing bike racer and really he took me on as his son I guess and, and, and taught me everything he knew so that was one of the most amazing experiences I've ever had in my life. I, I, without him there is no way I'd be in this situation. So how the 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 engineering or the, the the learning the electronics to 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 start the business that you did is that all self taught or did you end up going to school for that? It was all self taught, but interesting to note. Every year or two, I would I would get burnt out on bikes, and I I just physically it was such a busy time in the bicycle industry. We found that throwing extra hands. Um, to the jobs just meant you had to fix more people's work. There really wasn't the quality of mechanics that we wanted for our sort of store. So we worked incredibly hard and we'd be booked out for three weeks in advance and I guess every couple of years I would burn out. And what I would do is I would have a break. Now, as an interesting, interested in electronics all my life, as a person that was obsessed with with electronics and bicycles together, I would go work for an electronics factory. So I might have six months off and I'd work for an electronics factory. And at the time, the Canberra was, a, was the, the capital, still, uh, still is the capital, but at the time there was a lot of industry there for the military. So I ended up working for a couple of military-grade electronic companies and, and they kind of tooled me up on, on what I needed to do to be a good electronic technician. But, yeah, it's all pretty much self-taught. And I just, as a as, as person that didn't have any money, you either make it or you didn't do it. So I just sort of made stuff, I guess, out of bits and bobs that I had. I, I started by getting a couple of downlights. I don't know what you call them in your country, but they're a little dichroic globe that would sit in the ceiling and I just modified those to be bike lights to start with. And I guess that was my first light. Um, back in the day, the only lighting system that existed was called a BLT. I'm pretty sure that was a Canadian light. I don't know if you know that, right? No. But uh, the very first lights were a Canadian light, and they were just a, a incandescent globe. And uh, they kept kind of failing or the, the lead would pop out of the battery or something silly would happen. And I guess as a bike mechanic, you would just go, oh, I've got to fix that little issue. And I just started working on them. And back then they were really simple. So really I, I just kind of needed to have lights and my mates needed to have lights and there really wasn't a lot around. So we just kind of made them. And I, I guess that was the start, really. So so it started kind of as a need for something you, you needed. You you had the you know, the resourcefulness to figure out how to connect the dots. I guess I'm curious next is like how do you go from that to seeing a need to actually develop the business side of it? Business was not really my thing. I was very anti business. Um being kind of a little bit poor, I kind of I 
I, I was a bit anti-spending money. It was all about what I could achieve and, and what I could make. And what I realised early in in, in in building stuff was it forced you to learn stuff that I guess you maybe wouldn't learn or, or your things you wouldn't do if you could buy stuff. So by being forced to make something and figure it out myself, I guess I kind of learned to be very resourceful. I learned the art of making something that doesn't exist, but being forced to do it took you outside of your comfort zone and you ended up doing stuff that you normally wouldn't do. Um, so, for example, we used a dichroic uh, globe, which was what we call a downlight, and they were very, very popular. I think we originally used a tow ball cover from the back of a car and we fitted the diachroic in that and we just used some old lead batteries to kind of get us going. And that was really the start of lights. And everything was so simple back then, Ryan. There was really nothing flash about electronics. It was a couple of resistors, a couple of diodes, and maybe some capacitors. That's what we had. We didn't have semiconductors. We didn't really have... Uh, microcomputers or microcontrollers or anything that we have these days. So it was a different world. I, I think the average 12-year-old is probably smarter than me now. You know what I mean? <laughs> like the the coding and, and all the way everything's done nowadays is so more advanced. I, I really want to get into that, but I'm still stuck in the analog days of resistors and capacitors. And I, I guess I've never really moved on from that. I, I learned in the 80s and the 90s and Really, I just kind of learnt what I had to learn and the obsession with LEDs is what, what really drove me. Um, and so I just had to move to LEDs. So I actually made the very first high-power LED bike light in the world. And many people don't know that. I was K-Light battery systems um, for quite a few years. Um, when I started making battery lights, they were pretty basic. And then I kind of found that LEDs had just started to come out into the very first high-power LED. And the day they were brighter than an incandescent globe, well, that was the day that I kind of was born. Hmm. Um, so it's it's interesting, like for an entrepreneur like myself, you know, I think about anything in electronics and, you know, I see who's already out there doing that sort of thing. And I, I just see this huge long line of, you know, if I'm going to want to make something like this, I have to know the, you know, how, how to engineer it. And then you're going to have to go make it in China and this and that. And it was, it was interesting. I was looking at your, um, your pages the other day, you've got this fun little comic graphic on your about section on, on how the lights came to be. And, um, it looks like you actually produce most, if, if not all of it, uh, right in Australia. Is that the case? Well, it's actually a little bit more crazy than that, Ryan. I personally made every single light I sold by hand in my bedroom. <laughs> I was hoping you'd say So I didn't even... Yeah, I didn't even have a factory. Like, essentially, um, what happened was I was a bike mechanic for 24-hour races. Being a good bike mechanic and also knowing a little bit about electronics, 
I was very popular and I ended up working for a lot of the sort of, I guess, more professional races and more professional riders in the, in the 90s. And 24 was big. It was massive. I'm talking like the biggest cycling events in the world were 24-hour races. And I loved it. I loved being up all night and, and, and all the decisions in the middle of the night that could kind of make or break the win. You know, I remember uh, Gordo going over to um, the US or Canada, wherever it was, and doing the 24 hours of adrenaline and putting himself in a hospital trying to, trying to beat beat the, the the guy that was, you know, I think he had, I think his name was Corey, maybe. I guess I'm wrong. Maybe that's a new guy. But Ted had like seven or, or something something in a row and I think Gordo broke that winning winning stretch and, and that was that was amazing. So everyone got into twenty four hours and I was working at twenty four hours and back then HID lights were king, you know, the they had a high intensity discharge light that I think everyone moved to. But they were, were failing. And I think this guy who was I think nationally ranked number one or, or, or very good at the time, his HIDs failed. I had one of the very first LED lights that I'd personally designed myself, just for my own use. And I said, "Look, you're you're my guy. I'm I'm the mechanic for you. I need to put this on your bike. Your lights have failed, so we end up fitting these LED lights to his bike. And I think he went really well. He was really happy, and that ushered in the new dawn of LED lights for me personally." And and then I just started making them for everyone. It was the weirdest thing. I was making that many LED lights. My wife was looking at me saying, maybe you should think about doing this for real because you're not doing anything else. And so you really need to make some money out of this shit. Otherwise, you're just going to be going backwards. And so I think it was 2006 where I decided to really sell up everything I owned and move away from Canberra, where I where I was a bike mechanic, because I could really never be anything else. I kept getting dragged back to being a bike mechanic. So the theory was sell everything, move to a cheaper town, which was Newcastle, and start this LED light business with batteries. And I made the very first CNC LED light in the world. And it was super bright. It was like 1,100 lumens that had immense run time. Back in the day, it was me and A-Up. A-Up were really the only thing that was even close to being good. Now, A-Up was about 340 lumens or 240. I was at 1,100 lumens, so I was that much brighter. I ended up getting pretty much most of the, the professional 24-hour races uh, sponsored by K-Lite. And that was really the start for for K-Light business. And I was pretty shit at the businessman, so I was still making them by hand. Um, I was getting someone else to make the housings, and it, it, it absolutely took off, and I started really smashing them out the door. That was until China caught up and started uh, making them very, very cheap with, you know, cheap labour and, and, and probably not as nice and not as efficient, um, but they were cheaper. And I guess that's what wins in the end is, is cheapness for mass production anyway. And then the Australia Post, which is my shipping company, they banned the shipping of lithium-ion batteries and lithium-polymer batteries. They banned them because there was all this fear about them catching on fire. And they were quite right. They're, 
there is a bit of a problem with, with the lithium-based batteries, and they do tend to catch on fire if abused, and, and I didn't want to burn anyone's house down. So I kind of left the, the battery market, but I had a whole bunch of housings for the lights still there, and I thought, what am I going to do with these? And um, quite a few years ago, I had designed my own dynamo light, so I thought, well, really, I've got no choice. Um, I, I, I reused those battery housings and I produced the world's brightest dynamo light. Um, and and I, I made as many as I could and I would work, I guess, night and day. The very first of the 3D printers had come out. And so I thought, well, I don't have a factory, so I brought a 3D printer and I started producing my own um, casings and producing my own mounts. And my my light design was was very simple and very reliable. It just can't, tended to last and last and last. And well, I guess uh, one guy had him on the tour divide, and then another person saw it. And because they were the brightest in the world, any other dynamo light looked really dim uh, in comparison. So the the TDR the tour divide was really where I believe the modern dynamo system was born. I was already doing it, um, but no one had any heard about it. And I guess I get a couple of people in the Tour Divide riding it, and it all snowballed. And now, like, literally must have seen 60 units <laughs> that I personally saw in the Tour Divide this year. So it was it was an amazing thing to see how far I had come in, in just a few short years. Yeah, I, I love the story of the entrepreneur. And, and when I looked at that um, comic on your about section about you using the 3D printer, I just I, I thought that was awesome. And uh, kudos to you for figuring this out. And I'm thinking back to you know my own timeline on, on where I learned about dynamo-powered lights and in the usb um when i did the 2012 tour divide i don't recall hearing anything about dynamo um hubs it wasn't well it wasn't until a year or two later where i i feel like it really started to come into the the mix and then in 2015 when i did it again you saw it everywhere but it was as you as you said it was the technology was there um you know well before but i, I guess the, the the question that's jumping out to me as I'm listening, so I've only ever had exposure or experience with the exposure um, lights. Like I, I'm wondering, do so like, you use a dynamo light at all, right? Yeah, yeah. So I I have um, the MK1 light, um, and then so so, so the, the scoop with that is I actually designed that light. <laughs> so okay, so here's me wondering, like. Is the technology that I don't like? I don't need to know all the ingredients to the secret sauce here, but like, is the technology that complicated? Like, how come Exposure doesn't have, you know, put their resources behind creating, you know, the world's brightest light and like, you know, try to best you on that? So you have a history with that business. Well, the interesting fact that the, a guy from Exposure contacted me and 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 we worked a little bit together. I didn't know you from Exposure. Um, and we came up with, you know, a pretty kick-ass design based on the design that I'd already done. We'd really only tweaked it by 10%. And then they turned that light into their, their dynamo light. Um, and that kind of hurt me a little bit. 
Um, it was my baby, and I felt like I'd gotten robbed a little bit. But it was actually a blessing because if, if, if I say something that's good and I'm just one guy, not really many people listen. They may now, but back in the day, my voice was not heard. But for exposure to come out with exactly the same design that basically was was based on and really was my light, um, they really put Dynamo Systems on the map. And they combined the very first high-powered LED light, other than my, my own light, they combined that with, I guess, rebranding the SP Dynamo Hub, and, and, and they were marketing it like nothing else. Now, I couldn't afford marketing. I couldn't even afford a bag of rice to eat, you know what I mean? Um, so there's no way I could push, push, push the market or push the brand. So really I let, let the exposure guys kind of create the want and create the need for the Dynamo systems uh, now, obviously, I leapfrogged them pretty quickly and produced a much brighter light than them. And the technology is is so very simple, it is ridiculous. Like, literally, I'm not an amazing engineer, but what I am really good at was what I learned to do as a bike mechanic. So back in the day, you would have very limited tools. You would have very limited parts. You might have a box full of hub cones and really that's it. And you need to perform miracles on these bikes to, to get them all going, but with really nothing. And so I became an expert at doing amazing work with absolutely nothing. And that's what made me. That's what turned me into, you know, who I am today with the ability to really do something from nothing. So I had nothing and I had no money and I thought, well, how am I going to achieve uh, all these things I want to achieve? And what I wanted to achieve was environmentalism and I wanted to stop the people kind of polluting the world as quickly as they are. And I thought, well, Bums on Bikes has got to be one of the best ways to do it. By simply having a bicycle, we reduce a lot of the impact that we have on this world. We produce a healthier human, which is then mentally uh, more stable. And it has so many ongoing effects that I had to do that. So I was then driven to get bums on bikes by removing all the excuses that people have um, like you, you get in your car, your lights work, and you can plug your phone into the little USB port. Um, it all just works. You, you don't expect it not to work. So I thought, well, hell, bikes have got to work like that. And so it was really my push to um, get people on bikes. And Revo, or the exposure company, really helped me with that by producing some of those first mass-produced units. And that's when you saw them you know, coming out in 2013, 2014. And I was lucky enough to sponsor guys like JP, um, Neil. I guess a lot of the top guys at the time were really interested in the technology. And, 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 and they hit me up. And, of course, you know, Josh Cato, he, he now rides it. And there's so many top pros that ride it now. I guess they have been instrumental in really bringing it to 
I guess, irregular consumers. And I guess I owe them a debt of gratitude for believing in me. Because essentially, I just was a bike mechanic, and I, I still feel a bit like I'm just a bike mechanic. But now I have this business that um, is a lot bigger than me. And uh, that was really the start. The Revo put me on the map, and I just kind of like smashed out of the park with unbelievably good service and a really good quality, reliable product. That's literally so simple. If you were to take it to an electronic factory, they would go, where's the rest? <laughs> like, literally, the company, now that I have a little factory kind of help me, I, I can't personally produce enough now. I don't have enough hands to do all the emails, to to, to answer all the questions and to produce all the lights now. I simply don't have enough time in the, in the day. So I now have a factory. Uh, it's a local factory. It is still in Australia, so I, I will not go to China because I sort of disagree with a lot of their production techniques and the fact that they use child labour and, and cheap labour. Uh, you know, the Chinese people probably don't have an amazing life living in the pollution and all that sort of stuff. So I'm, I'm definitely staying in Australia. And, yes, the product is probably a little bit more expensive given that, but I believe the, the product is better. Um, so I now have a factory and I now have to worry about producing in the hundreds rather than producing in the tens, and it's very, very different. Um, very different, my job now. I sort of have grown up so much in the last couple of years and had to really be a different person and, and change my thinking to be successful. Um, and it, it's been quite confronting. Um, it's been quite tough. And I guess it's it's something that you, you wouldn't do if you knew what it involved. It was just I had to keep going. I couldn't let the K-Light die. I thought, nah, I've created something that I believe is very special and I've helped a lot of people sort of start out the adventure uh, of their life simply because I've had a product that is plug-and-play. It is a turnkey solution. You don't have to wire it up yourself. Currently, every other dynamo lighting system in the world, you actually have to wire it up yourself. It comes with open, open wire. You've got to have a soldering iron. You've got to, you've got to know about building stuff. And I thought, well... Hell, some people are not good at that. They might be really good at being an accountant or they might be really good at being a lawyer or a doctor or, or fixing stuff or whatever, but they may not have these tools and they may not have these skills to do that. So I guess with my plug-and-play system, it allowed people to buy into the technology but without needing that skill set. So they could just kind of concentrate on peddling so they just made sure the bike went forward and, and they had the right type of gear and, and they could do it. And, and really that was the start of the snowball. And I guess I have quite a lot of customers that love the plug-and-play factor and, and that's probably the biggest reason why they buy the K-Light system is it's all done. Yeah, I even make my own GPS mounts. <laughs> well, I love it. There's there's a bit of a punk rock element to to all of this, and uh, I'm I'm thinking of questions as as you're talking about the technology, and you know, to to someone that's new to this, that's like, okay, so I need a Dynamo hub. I need okay, so the light, um, the USB, you know, the power switch, and all that. So as far as making a more powerful light, it's not necessarily the 
it's not the dynamo it's is it is it how it's wired is it the type of light you're using like what what's kind of proprietary or like what's special about the k-light that makes it as bright as it is um it's actually the fact that i do such small production runs so let, let's take revo for example that is a fantastic light. There's, there's no doubt about that. It, it, it's, it, it's a great light. But they're still using, I guess, old version LEDs. And so the thing to remember, the most important factor is there is a very limited power coming from the hub. And everyone is in the same boat. So everyone only has the same amount of power coming from the hub. So it's all about who's been more efficient to get a brighter light. Now, that, that's really where it, where, it, where it is. You've got to be more efficient. So what I do is I do smaller production runs. It allows me to follow the technology a little bit better. So, so Cree LEDs have just re- released a more efficient LED. And so every time I'd do that, I'd go, hey, I'm so grabbing that one. So I, I grab the latest and greatest LED. Now, Back in the day, it might have been, for the same power, it might have been 800 lumens. Now it's 1,300 lumens. Now, that's nothing I've done. That is simply Cree, the, the company who makes the LEDs, they've brought out more efficient LEDs. And, of course, on my limited production runs, I can tool up with the new technology a lot quicker. So there might be new capacitors. There might be new, uh, more efficient parts. Um, there might be new efficient ways to put those parts together, and it's about me being, I guess, the uber purist on on that efficiency. So what I found as a bike mechanic is we could we could affect one or two percent here, you know, build the wheels a certain way, one or two percent there, you know, put a lot of grease in the headset or in the hubs or whatever to be faster. All these little percentages they add up. So you might be 15, 20% better than the next mechanic. So your bike is faster, even if they're the same bike. All these tricks that I learned as a bike mechanic about being very efficient, like when you're working for the number one guy in Australia, man, you have to be good. You've got to get it right, and it's got to be better than the rest. And you've got to know all these tricks to make it better. So it's just the fact that I try harder. That's the main reason. And it's to do with the size of the market. So it was thought that for Revo or Exposure to bring out a new lamp on such a small market when they want to sell hundreds of thousands, it's simply not worth it. And the market is German-driven, so because every bike in Germany must have a dynamo light and they must have all these standards that no one really is going to try too hard because it's such a small market. And, and so it's the fact that it's a small market, the fact that I produce very limited runs, that I can keep the technology or, or the new technology uh, to my lights quicker. So, so I'm always doing something better. At the moment, I'm working on reducing the size of the box, the electronic box that comes with my lights. And so, you know, possibly in a season or two to come, then it's going to be smaller again. It's going to be brighter. It's going to be more efficient. It's going to be, you know, probably uh, more waterproof or more robust as we drive the technology further. But you have such a limited amount of power. Um, Really, that's the key is to be more efficient with the work you do. So I'm always engineering 
uh, behind the scenes. I guess people don't see that, but every couple of months the light gets updated, and, and really that's right, I win. Hmm. So the, the, the box that you mentioned, is that um, the, the – excuse me, I, I don't know the terminology all that well, but is that the stand light? Is that like the, the reserve that keeps it going when you stop moving? Is that what the box is for? The, the box the, the box actually holds all of the electronics. And because I have a phobia about things breaking down, I, I, I don't have a little computer inside you know, a little computer that takes code, that the code will then crash or or the little computer can get upset. I, I, I don't have that. My light is a very 1980s analogue light which has got capacitors and resistors and things that are big. Um, modern electronics is not like that. It uses tiny, tiny little surface mount components they get affected by heat easily they get affected by vibration and 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 they've got ones and zeros built into them and so if you get your ones and zeros wrong it, it'll fall over and, and it'll it'll crap out and and the box holds all my electronics that is a little bit bigger so i can't fit it in the in the actual light unit itself and so the box that i talk about also has a stand light in it and the stand light's not a battery, it's actually supercapacitors. And the supercapacitors will have will last, you know, ten years where a battery like your iPhone battery, it kind of craps out every two years. So it's really important that I didn't use anything modern. I didn't use any type of battery. I used stuff that was very old fashioned and that has an incredibly high reliability. Because the last thing I wanted was any of my customers to have a failure on their their ride. Now, nowadays, the rides are up to 5,000 miles long. I know Dylan uh, Dylan is just about to come in, I think finished the, the, the first Trans Am trail race, which I think is 5,000-plus miles, which is phenomenal. And I didn't want his light, he rode K-Light, and I didn't want his light to fail. And so I go absolutely overboard to have the most reliable components, the most old-fashioned way of doing it i guess the way that stereos were built in the 70s you know solid state um everything's big it's not going to get affected by heat it's going to be super robust and and that's why i have to have to have a little bit of a bigger box compared to i guess a lot of the the lights it's all in one but the all-in-one lights with the tiny little components they are uh, have a higher failure rate and that's not what I was into. You know, I kind of stress out a bit about every rider on the Tour Divide or on the on the Trans Am or, or the, the Ram or the Continental, whatever the race they're riding. I kind of stress out about it and I would hate for it to fail. So it's all about reliability and, and reliability means the biggest size and the biggest size does mean a little external box that I kind of hide away. Um, so things may change in the future. We may have uh, a, a newer light in the future that maybe an all-in-one, and, 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 and that may be something we bring out in the future as technology increases. But at the moment, we have a, a little box that gets tucked away, and that box will get smaller. And uh, that's the box we talk of. And, and certainly, as you've said, it has the stand light inside, and the stand light is what runs the light when you'll stop. So when, you're, when your hub stops producing power and doesn't have any power for the light, there's a little supercapacitor bank inside that then... Uh, gives you 
the power back and, and it gives you enough light to set your tent up and uh, you will actually see those little LEDs still visible in the morning. Um, so they do last quite a few hours and, and that's where we get the box from and and. and so that's that's the box. We all love the box. <laughs> Not <laughs> well. It's it's very interesting to learn because I you know I used it for uh, Tour Divide and Arizona Trail, and you know I'm still I'm still very much learning. So the the light that you have is is at its highest is is twelve hundred lumens, as I understand it. And you said the 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 LED technology is is evolving. It's at thirteen hundred now. You saw like how quickly does is is that technology evolving? Well, um, as they slowly get more efficient in the way they build them, they slowly get more efficient. But what happens is suddenly some little uh, engineer uh, at Cree uh, LEDs, they will come up with a new way of doing it, a new form of substrate which they can... Uh, make their LEDs with and what happens is as soon as a new technology comes out we actually get a massive increase in the brightness. I remember talking to a good friend of mine about being excited about LEDs were going over the 60 lumens per watt. So 60 lumens per watt is what a light bulb or an incandescent globe produces. As soon as they took over incandescent globes, I was like, oh, my God, this is incredible. We're at 60 to 80 lumens per watt. We were then amazed when it hit 100. Now, with new substrates and new technology, we might be up to 180 or 200 plus lumens per watt of power used. Uh, and, and that's to do with the, the engineers and them being amazing and finding a new technology. So we've had quantum leaks in LED technology. Now, it might be a matter of two months. It might be a matter of six months. So these companies who produce these LED light systems, that might take maybe six months on the boat from China. You may have had to be building that six months ahead uh, before you put that order in. So when, when that brand new light gets to you, that light might be a year old. And so you're forced to have a year old, even if they had the modern LEDs at the time, which they probably didn't. They probably had a, LEDs that they designed a year before that. So so a, a normal dynamo light or, or an LED light might be two years behind in the actual technology that's out today. And that makes a huge difference. Whereas me, as soon as a new LED comes out, I'm like, all right, boys, order another hundred of them. Right, as soon as we finish this hundred run, so I build them in the hundreds. As soon as we finish this hundred run, I bung the new LEDs in. So at the moment, we're on the brand new, the highest bin rating. So a bin rating is the efficiency of that particular one on an XPG uh, 3. So that is the latest and greatest. LED that's been produced by the Cree and um, by the fact that I build in such small runs uh, at local factory level uh, allows me to to really ride the efficiency. And, and, and so it, probably on a three to six month cycle do these LEDs get, get better and better. And, and this is why everyone's moving to the LEDs. I remember telling the guy uh, 
who runs one of the big companies, he was selling HIDs at the time. And I said, no, 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 mate. <laughs> Get with the LEDs. He goes, no, no, HIDs are going to be winning. And I said, no, they will not. And he came back to me, I think, a year later saying, oh, you were right. Uh, LEDs are going to win. And, and we don't see HID lights at all now. You might see them in the car, but even cars now are moving over to high-power LEDs. So really, LED, LED's the king. LED's the king. Very interesting. Uh, we're never going to get anything better than LED, yeah. And I'm obsessed with LEDs. Ever since I first saw the, the very first little red LED on the stereo, on your mum's stereo or record player, I was like, oh, my God, I'm so going to get onto that. And I would make lots of LED circuits, and I've always been obsessed with lighting. So it's a it's, it's weird sort of synergy between being a bike mechanic and being obsessed with lighting and, and being forced to make the technology I guess I have a very small niche market. If if the tour divide or if all these big epic events were stopped stopped moving and stopped being uh, competed in, I think I would probably go back to fixing bikes. Hmm. So I'm I'm looking at my bike and you know I, I I understand kind of most of the pieces here and 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 the big kind of question mark that I, I'm wondering about is is it seems like to control the whole process, you'd almost want to be building the dynamo hubs too. Is, is that something that's ever entered the equation? Um, you know, is that, is that totally in left field or, you know, is that something you've ever wanted to do is, is to know how to build those? The, the, the factory that I have did say, Oh, wow, let's have a look into it. And, and, and they're quite right in doing that. But to, to produce anything in this modern world, you've got to produce it in the hundreds of thousands. Um, and unless you do it in the hundreds of thousands, I don't think people are interested because there's no profit in doing one-offs. There's no profit in doing 10-offs. There's no profit in doing 100 units. To be honest, I don't really make a great deal of money from doing it. I, I guess I do it for the love and the passion and, and I'm trying to achieve my environmental goals. But there's really... There's no motivation for anyone to build anything unless they're building in the hundred thousands. And so with with the hubs, with with a lot of the, the, the product, it's it simply cannot be done unless you've got a factory in Taiwan or a factory in China or, or you're a big factory like Sun that, that they they're in Germany, they make the best hubs. Um, unless you're a big factory, I really don't see anyone or even me bringing out anything else. And there are little, tiny, little dynamos that people have brought out, but they really don't have a lot of power. And really, it's the hub that has the ability to produce an amazing amount of power. So I personally don't see me ever producing a hub. Um, I personally think that in probably five years' time, we, we probably won't see a lot of dynamo lights. I believe that the technology of batteries and the technology of lighting will surpass the need for, for possible uh, power on demand. You know, with the storage these days, um, they're looking at kinetic batteries where just the power of vibration charges a battery. They're looking at um, graphene batteries, um, which can be charged uh, incredibly quickly and can have an absolute massive storage capacity in a very small size. So I believe that the battery technology will actually surpass the need to have uh, Dynamo hubs. So that, that's, that's what I reckon. 
um, in the future. Uh, the batteries will probably win. Now, I'm not into batteries. I know that the the cobalt that's used in these batteries uh, is such short supply that that they get children in the Congo to to mine it. And again. I'm not into that. So I'll, I'll work away from batteries as much as I can. And so for now, I'm really pushing the hubs. It's something that's sustainable, something that can offer you instant power on demand, something that doesn't get mucked up due to the conditions changing. So I'll give you an example. Say, for instance, you've got a battery. Say, for instance, you're cycling X amount of miles to the next town and you know it's going to take this amount of time, and you know that your GPS draws this much power and your phone draws this much power, so you know that you have enough power to get there. Now, let's just say it rains. Let's just say it snows. Let's just say you get death mud, and your speed is now half the speed that you were going. So really, the equation's changed. You now need twice the amount of battery power to go that same distance just because the conditions change. Now, if you run out of battery power and say your GPS goes down and you can't follow your little squiggly line, well, that's kind of bad because you kind of need to know where you're going. Some of these trails are covered in snow and without even with a map, you just cannot be sure if that's the trail you need to go on. And suddenly your time is increased and suddenly your GPS is going to run out. That's dangerous. So for me, power on demand, the dynamo will always be there. It will just keep chugging power for your day that's now twice as long. So really you're producing twice as much power than than you were going to have to produce, but the Dynamo gives you the ability to do that. A battery would simply not do that. So still, for the next five years, I still think the Dynamos, for all the smart guys and for the guys and girls that really want redundancy for any conditions, I do believe for the next five years we'll, we'll be Dynamos for sure. Hmm. Correct me if I'm wrong, but is the Dynamo technology, the, the hub technology, is, is it a evolving really like i haven't really heard of new models coming out like i don't really feel like i've got my finger on that pulse but um look to be honest that's not evolving and the hubs are designed to saturate at 15k an hour and that's why 95 percent of the lights are such low powered what i personally discovered was about 10 years ago i discovered that there was a little trick to producing way more power from the hub than anybody else ever. And I guess I exploited that little discovery that I found and out of the three watt hub, my light pulls seven watts. Now obviously it's copper wires, so it's it is no problem and the hub's never gonna be damaged or anything like that. Copper wires can be oversaturated by a lot and so there's no issues with the hub failing. But me finding that power anomaly to produce more power from the hub is what produced the brightest light in the world. Now, certainly, Exposure used that um, technology that I discovered to to produce the Revo, and that's why their Revo is quite powerful. But you look at any other light, like your supernova and, and the sunlight and all that sort of stuff, they're only rated in the 200, 300, 400 lumens. And that is because that 
the Habsburg is built a certain way for the German laws, and the hubs are not evolving. They are getting slightly more efficient, but they're not really evolving. So that's kind of locked in stone. No one wants to do anything else because they need to have it comply with the German laws of saturation at 15k an hour. So I, I, I agree with you. They're not evolving. Things that are happening is companies like Sun, and they're really leading the world, the Schmidt brand, and they produce the Sun 28. They now produce the Sun Deluxe. Now, the Sun Deluxe is, comes out in 9mm, so for, you, I guess, your old-fashioned bikes, and they produce it in the 12mm through axle. It is actually the most efficient and the most um, less uh, resistance from your body when the light's off that's ever been produced. So that's, that's a new hub. It's called the Sun Deluxe. Now, if you're on a Warbird or a 12mm through axle road bike, you should have that hub. That is simply an absolutely stunning hub that is less resistance underfoot. So it's robbing less power from you, which is really not a lot. You're not going to feel the difference, but on paper it's there. And, and so they are getting more efficient with the amount of off resistance that they drain from your body. They're not producing any more power. They're just becoming more efficient in resistance. That's the only changes to the hub. Yeah, they've got lots of sexy colours. Yep, they've got boost. They've got non-boost. They've got 12 mil. They've got 15 mil. They've got 9 mil. They've got 150 mil fat bike. You know, they've got a lot of different types, but certainly they are not producing any more power. And, and, and that is a little bit of a shame because we could have enough power to run lights and charge a laptop and do everything if, if they put a little bit more copper in the hubs. But that's against the German law, and so they won't do that. And such a small market, they're going to kind of keep what they know they can sell. So hubs are kind of locked. The, the, the lights that are evolving are really, while well, the K-lights are evolving, I don't think there's exposure to evolving. No one else is really interested in bringing out high-powered LED lights because it's against the German law. And, look, I don't really sell any lights to Germany, so I don't really care. So I'm not, not going to bother with those German laws. My light's actually illegal in Germany. So if you're in Germany and you're listening, um, that's illegal. Illegal to ride my light in Germany due to how good it is. Oh, awesome. Well, this is a lot of information I bet most people don't know. I, I think this is this is great that we chatted. Um, moving on to – we had one question come in. Uh, from one of our listeners, Stephen S., um, kind of uh, segueing from your, your snow comment, he says, as a fat biker in both summer and winter, uh, I'm concerned about performance in the cold. He lives in uh, Manitoba where uh, temperatures uh, can easily get down to minus 40 degrees Celsius, uh, which he both commutes and uh, plays in. So do you have any, any feedback for uh, the performance uh, issues in cold? Um, I can tell him, and this is exciting to say, that the LEDs perform much better in the cold. Hmm. So the same power to an LED at 24 degrees compared to the same power to that same LED at minus 40, the LED at minus 40 produces more light. So that's great. 
Now, I know my systems have been tested to minus 50 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, a lot of my lights are used in the Iditarod, uh, in some of these winter ultras. Um, the main reason being is, unlike 90% of the dynamo lights on the market, my light has all the power pushed down low. So my peak power is actually at around 13 mile an hour. Not, not 50, not 40, but at around 13 mile an hour is my absolute peak power. It's actually dimmer, a tiny bit dimmer at higher speed. The reason why I do this is, is at walking speed or, or, or at, at, at snow pushing speed. You've actually got quite a bit of light still. So I guess my lights have been very popular for the snow guys simply because they don't have computers in them. Uh, it's, it's almost like a Russian style, you know. They need it to work in such extreme conditions that they make it very simple. Um, all my plastics uh, and everything and all my capacitors are certainly rated down to minus 40, and the lights produce more light at that cold temperature. So the, the, the factor of having all the power pushed down low and uh, minus 50 rated components gives me the ability to have more light on the road or more light on the snow than any other brand on the market at, at that super cold temperatures. Now, I've never been in super cold. We're, we're winter here at the moment, and I went out in shorts. <laughs> uh, on my ride on the weekend, I was in shorts, and I think I had a pair of arm warmers on. And that was really it. So we don't get winter really at all. So I, I go on the feedback of all the guys on the Iditarod and on all these winter ultras, and they actually have no problems and they prefer the light. And actually, on the white snow, it's even better. You get a, a great amount of reflection on that snow. So I guess they win. They win-win uh, with the K-Light on the snow. So absolutely no problem, and you'll find that it's going to be really good uh, on the snow for sure. Excellent. There you go, Stephen S. So, uh, wrapping it up, uh, Kerry, what, what's what's next for you? What's uh, any any bike packing trips planned? Like uh, vacations? Like what's next? Um, so, so my wife is pretty important to me, and I felt like I've robbed her of a relationship for the last ten years. So, I have literally been working ninety hours a week. Um, making myself probably a little bit ill uh, by getting burnt out. And my wife has to look after me or did have to look after me so that I didn't fall off the bicycle. And so my main push is now to spend as much time with my wife as, as possible. And so we're creating routes and rides and, and tours and trips that involve us being together uh, and being together on a bike or in a bikey nature. Uh, last year we went canyoning uh, in an alpine river together. So that, that was great. I think this year I'm going to try and get over to Perth. We have a amazing trail called the Mundabindi Trail. Now, I've probably pronounced that wrong because it's an Aboriginal name. But the government have spent maybe $10 million making the longest continuous off-road uh, ride in the world. Hmm. And they've done that in Australia. And 
the, the beauty of it is they didn't think riders could go very far, so they put this amazing little hut with water and sleeping every 50 k. <laughs> yeah. um, so it's the longest off-road trail in the world, continuous off-road trail in the world, whereas every 100 or 120, 30K, it brings you out to a resupply point in the town, and then every 50K, it brings you to a little hut. Right. So this year I'm pretty keen to take my wife down, and we can hold hands mostly on the trail and um, do a bit of bike packing together. Um, I'm, I'm wanting to stay a little bit more off-road nowadays than the on-road, and, and I guess... Other people are feeling the same thing. So, if any of you listeners out there interested in coming to Australia, um, you know, probably April or it's probably a good time before it gets coolish. Uh, it's one of the longest continuous off-road trails in the world. The Mundabindi. My wife was pronounced it correctly, so that's pronounced incorrectly. But it starts in Perth. It's only a thousand kilometres, so you could probably go there and back. You know, and that, and that gives you your, your 2,000K. Um, absolutely amazing. So things like that is, is where I want to go next. I'm actually working on some new product, and I'm working on some new USB chargers. And for the last two years, I've just been kind of finalising sort of the ins and outs of, of this new product. And it's, it's going to be hand-in-hand hand with the current light, it's just going to be a slightly different variation uh, with some with some real customised beam patterns. This year, I'm working on more efficiency. So, we're we're taking the efficiency we've got at the moment, and we've spent the last two years trying to tweak that and get it just a little bit better. Now, it's probably only going to be fifteen to twenty percent better, but if I keep doing that every year or so it's going to keep the product evolving and there's going to be more exciting reasons for you to get your bum on a bike and get out there away from your mobile service, get away from Wi-Fi, get away from being obsessed with the internet and and starting to get out to nature and, 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 and learning some things. I think if you're trapped away in your house looking at your phone all day, it's not going to be good for your brain. And so I urge all these people... Get your bums on bikes, get to your local bike shop, get the parts you need to get out there and start doing some overnighters. I honestly believe that the overnighters are key to learning what you need to learn to get out and about. So for me, it's going to be overnighters, it's going to be the Mundabindi, going to be doing stuff with my wife, and going to be working on uh, new product, uh, new USB chargers. Um, pretty excited to release a new USB charger that has the ability to remove the need for a USB cache battery. Do you know what I mean by the USB cache battery that everyone uses? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, the- and that's annoying. And the, and the little micro USB plug not designed for being outside, and it kind of dies. And because of the firmware changes, you don't know one that's going to actually take charge and give out charge to stop your GPS from squawking. So I've actually designed a USB charger that does not need a USB cache. It's got some little super caps inside that's going to look after your GPS and stop it from squawking. And I'm really excited about this solution because it's a solution that I am desperate to get out because everyone needs it. Everyone's on the forums every day saying, hey, what cache batteries work? Um, 
I plug in my GPS, but it shuts down because my GPS is low power and the firmware's wrong. And they say it works, but it doesn't work. And my little plug died and the skip things are heavy and they don't last. I, I'm just so over all those problems and all those issues. So for me, it's about constantly being on the forums, reading all the little issues that people have or the little things that they don't like and then trying to come out with solution-based products that will solve these issues and really save that day. So for me, the eTrex charger that I'm coming out, because I think the eTrex is probably the best GPS, the most simple GPS, AA batteries back up, makes the most sense for remote uh, touring. So my eTrex charger, I'm super excited to bring that out. Hopefully I'll bring it out next season. We're just working on the final... Um, electronic sort of design to, to make that a little bit more robust. So new products, um, new riding, new overnights, that's what I'm sort of pushing at. I hope to have this year a trip maybe to Europe or to New Zealand, somewhere else to sort of talk about um, the new products, maybe do a bit of a product launch. That's where I'm sort of heading at, sort of new products, new efficiency, new systems to complement what we've currently got. So it's going to be a pretty exciting next season for me and um, pretty exciting for you given that it uh, looks like you may be taking on the Canadian dealership for K-Light. Is this correct? Yeah, I, I was just going to say, like, uh, I... I I had j- just got to know you, so we we met in Banff, and um, you know, just through this this conversation alone, like it it it, it really reinforced. Like I'm I'm all about relationships um, when it comes to business, and I really appreciate your your entrepreneur story, your your kind of punk rock uh, outlook to some degree, and um, what your 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 advantage in being able to innovate, I think, is really interesting, especially in our in our niche. And, um, yeah, so you and I, we, we've chatted about, uh, bringing the, the K-Lite systems to, to Canada because they are definitely the, the go-to system. So we're going to start, uh, we're going to do an initial run here pretty soon and, and we're going to put them up on the site, uh, in the next, uh, week or two and, uh, start figuring out how to get them out, uh, to people. But, uh, thank you, Carrie. I think this has been the most interesting technical chat I've, I've ever, uh, had the pleasure of listening to and possibly you know one of the the more interesting podcasts uh, we've ever done it's it's your wealth of knowledge and and you've got a great story so kudos to you well thank you so much and and what i'd love to do is to talk more obviously not now at a different time about all the subsets so we do a little bit of a talk about usb cache batteries okay so they are a bit of an issue and i have a whole bunch of tests that you can perform on the battery in a very simple way that helps guide people through the technology that allows them to find a product that is actually working for what they need. So, oh, look, I ride, I ride, and I think that's the biggest difference between all the other engineers out there. Most of the engineer, in, engineers out there probably haven't ridden more than 100 miles. You know what I mean? Whereas I like to think I ride my bike. I like to think that I have been a professional bike mechanic for 25 years. I've been riding and racing since the 90s. I like to think I know about bikes, and I like to think that I know about the technology. So 
me being able to sort of navigate through the technicalness and come out with a really easy way to do something is what I love, and I love to help people. So I love to chat more um, for the next podcast about all the different subsets and and how to achieve uh, a simplified technology that just works so you can just pedal and you don't have to stress out at at 1am in the morning. So thanks again and and thank you for calling me up and uh, I'd love to chat more. But thanks to all the listeners for tuning in and uh, we hope to chat more uh, at a different time. Thank you again, Ryan. For sure. Thank you. This has been uh, episode 32 of the Bike Pack Canada podcast. Cheers. Thanks, Gary.